Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers Real Estate Edition with Howard and Rob. We talk about real estate industry trends, emerging issues, and lots of news. We are where real estate happens. I'm Howard Altschuler, partner in charge of real estate services at Weaver. And as always, I'm joined by Rob Nowak, Weaver tax partner in real estate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and Rob and are not necessarily those of Weaver. Content provided is for general information and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. So, Rob, we're about two weeks or so into the new presidential administration. Remember a couple of weeks, or I should say a couple months ago, we did a podcast talking about potential for changes in taxes with a change in administration. We know that there's been a flurry of executive orders that have been written. And so wanted to kind of just touch base and see how things are going from a a tax or potential tax standpoint now that we know the direction that we're going from an administration perspective. I think we know a little bit more than we did before the election. We obviously know who's running the administration. You know, do we have some firm direction, though, on which aspects of the Biden administration's tax plan are likely to see traction? We sort of know what is out in the marketplace. We know it's been published, whereby the administration and Congress will be seeking an increase in tax rates on all types of tax, ordinary income, capital gains, qualified dividends. On the corporate side, we know that we'll be looking at an increase potentially in the corporate tax rate. And there's a number of provisions that are going to specifically impact real estate, such as whether or not Deferred exchanges, also known as like-kind exchanges or 1031 exchanges, will continue to be a a viable strategy to defer gains. Okay. And so what's going to drive this? I mean, we know that President Biden being a Democrat, if you follow the Democratic way of thinking, you're going to raise taxes, but he can't do it himself, correct? Correct. I mean, this is going to be, you know, an initiative that's going to be pursued by the White House as well as by both houses of Congress. One unknown is how the new power sharing agreement that's been brokered by Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell will play into this and how set the uh, you know, Democratic caucus will be on pushing this agenda forward unilaterally rather than seeking to make it more of a bipartisan effort. Now, I understand, though, that the Democrats are looking to push through the COVID relief bill currently as we speak basically by using reconciliation, which I understand would allow them to do that with just their very slim majority that they have. But I also understand that reconciliation can only be used once in any given budgetary period. So is that kind of like they're using all their ammo at the very beginning and therefore any type of tax changes that would be happening would be pushed into the subsequent year or they would have to be able to get a 60 vote majority on, in the Senate? want to clarify something. Congress can pass up to three reconciliation bills in any year, and each bill can address one of three major areas, revenue, spending, 
and then the debt limit. So think of you know income, expense, and debt. So if they pass a reconciliation bill that targets one of those areas, they can't pass another one later in the year that is going to affect one of the subjects that were addressed by that previous bill. So in practice, reconciliation bills have usually been passed uh, one time a year at most. However, two reconciliation bills that, that impacted the same subject matter uh, could be passed in 21, one for fiscal year 21 and another one for fiscal year 22. So you, you have mm-hmm. to look at not only the year in which they're passed, but to y- the year to which they relate. One of the benefits, if you are the party that is pursuing to pass budget less legislation through reconciliation, is it's able to be done with limited debate and a simple majority vote. That's sort of an end run around needing you know, bipartisan support and avoiding excessive debate on a particular resolution. Got it. And the fiscal year for the government is September 30th. That's correct. So if something were to be pushed through later in the year, I guess on the bright side, that really makes it that much harder for anything to be retroactive back to January 1st. Correct. But on the other hand, you know, you're talking about the simple majority, but again, the Democrats have the barest of majorities with 51 to 50 only because of the tiebreaker from Vice President Harris. So in essence, if you get one Democrat that says no, it kind of, it all falls apart, which kind of goes back to the need for the bipartisan support. Right. And that's, you know, when you start to look at this power sharing arrangement that has been brokered, and by the way, that's not a new concept that has been pursued when there is a slim majority in the Senate. And, you know, the the ruling party understands that they may not be the ruling party in two years or in four years. And I think that's important to understand that just because they can and that they being the Democratic caucus doesn't mean they will. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, the president and his advisors are going to face pressure from multiple factions within their party, as well as, you know, from the Republican caucus. It remains to be seen how they're going to balance all of that and either push through with reconciliation or you know, traditional um, legislative agenda and initiative. Okay. So let's move beyond the process and go towards the substance of what could be changing. For the purposes of our listeners, some of the important factors are going to be, number one, the corporate tax rate. Number two, potentially any changes to carried interest. Number three, any changes to like-kind exchanges. Maybe to a lesser extent, personal tax rate, and then maybe finally um, any potential changes for opportunity zones. Yeah, so the, the corporate tax rate, I think, is an easy one. In 2017, corporate tax rate went down. We're at 21%. Today, we were at 34%. Minimum tax or alternative minimum tax for corporations was repealed in 2017 for go forward years. And there's a proposal to uh, revive the AMT, but for very large corporations, those that might have earnings in excess of $100 million or another such limit. When you look at raising the corporate rate, let's say from its current 21% to 28% or 25%, do we think it's going to go back to 34%? Well, that's not the proposal. The proposal mm-hmm. is somewhere in between. So when you, when you think about rates, rates going up, are they going to, go, going to go up to what they were in 2017 or 2016? You know, that's not the proposal. So Right. That would make our country kind of uncompetitive in the world stage, right. which is definitely, you know, not the way we want to go, I would think. And, and it's, I think it still clearly shows the intent of the administration to compromise. While mm-hmm. they say they're rolling back the Trump tax cuts, they're really not rolling them back 100%. The capital gains one, I think, is very interesting because when I started in practice more than 25 years ago, capital gains were not 
the rate was 28%. And by the way, that 28% rate stood for uh, a period of time through multiple Republican administrations mm-hmm. and was eventually reduced and adjusted by a Democratic administration. <laughs> so if we raise, now if we look to raise the capital gain rate back to let's say 28% or to raise to raise it for higher income earners, we're probably effectively resetting the stage to what a, a taxing structure might have looked like prior to the year 2000, let's say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't think we're returning to tax rates of 19, you know, late 1970s, early 1980s. Got it. Okay. What about uh, carried interest? Is there any, any discussion on that? I mean, I know it's always, people always seem to have their mind on it and yeah. it seems to be always being interpreted. Any looking to change that? You know, the, the biggest issue with carried interest is how it impacts and is related to single tenant triple net leases. The thought is that carried interest does not relate to real estate assets. Real estate is not a capital asset. It's what's known as a section 1231 asset. So it's a different type of asset than, than capital. It's when sold, gains are taxed at capital gain rates and losses are actually treated as ordinary losses. Mm-hmm. So real estate sort of a, one of those hybrid type of assets. As it relates to carried interest, because it is not a capital asset, it's per se not subject to the carried interest rules, but then there's this carve out for triple single tenant triple net leases, which are not really thought to be a real estate trader business, but you know really are analogous to a, a credit risk type bond mm-hmm. where you have a, a tenant who's you know maybe a 20 year tenant, again, single tenant, who's basically paying you a, a coupon rate, if you will. That's not looked at as being real estate. And those types of leases are subject to carried interest. The challenge is that neither Congress nor the Treasury have defined what is a single tenant triple net lease that would not be subject to the carried interest rules. So that's an area that probably just needs a little bit of clarification, but it's unclear whether or not Congress or Treasury will further clarify that definition. And sometimes there's a benefit to not defining certain terms so that it provides the service and treasury with greater latitude on examination. Okay. Well, I, it sounds to me like if, if any of our listeners have single tenant triple net leases that a, a call in to yourself or their tax advisor would probably be very wise at this point. Absolutely. Okay. What about 1031 exchanges? You know, there's discussion about that quote loophole. Don't, being don't, taken that's, out. Not a, that's, that's not a loophole. See, <laughs> I, I know. I was going to mention that you keep reminding me that it's been in the tax code since the very beginning. Since 1913. So yeah. it was written into the code intentionally. It was not a loophole that was passed as part of, you know, allegedly abusive administration, uh, you know, taking liberties for, for the extremely wealthy real estate executives. It was enacted in 1913 along with uh, the code that was then in place and has remained in place. Now, it's undergone some modifications. At one point, any tangible or real property qualified for like-kind exchange treatment. So that meant equipment and real estate. In 2017, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, equipment or non-real estate assets were pulled out of the uh, like-kind exchange treatment so such that only real estate and real property qualifies for like-kind exchange treatment as we sit today. You know, the lobby to retain like-kind exchanges in 2017 was very strong. You know, you're talking about major real estate trade associations, National Association of Realtors, uh, and others that lined up to defeat a a wholesale repeal of 1031. I think you're going to see the same effort. And moreover, when you look at the number of senators and congresspersons who are in office, 
and had to listen to the debate on like-kind exchanges, 1031 exchanges during that period of time, many of those same people are still sitting in those chairs and that hopefully that knowledge and effort is fresh in their minds and they understand what an impact it might have on the industry if like-kind exchanges were removed from the code. So it sounds like you're, you're giving me a little bit of a non-answer, but it sounds like you're handicapping it that it's probably lower on the chopping block than maybe some other proposals. I gave a big non-answer. <laughs> I, gave I think it is much lower on the chopping block. You know, the things that are easier, um, you know, let's go with what's easy. Raising rates is something everybody understands mm-hmm. and can easily be quantified into the budget. Changing limitations on itemized deductions can be quantified and analyzed in the budget. I think it's a lot tougher to analyze what the effects of like-kind exchanges are. Got it. Okay. So now that you've talked about rates and you're talking about deductions, let's let's get into the the personal. You know, I think about a lot of our listeners and we we probably have some higher earners. We probably have some people that are taking advantage of the 199A deduction and things like that. So what do you see on the horizon from a personal standpoint? Well, there's two Two key things. Actually, I'd say three key things. One is the reduction in the amount of the lifetime exemption for estate and gift taxes. You know, this is a political football that's gone back and forth through various administrations. The thought is that the estate tax exemption will be reduced. Probably will go down to the $5 million level from being north of $11 million today. That's number one. Number two also relates to estate taxes. So, you know, death and taxes, two things that are inevitable. And that is the elimination of the basis adjustment at death. Today, if someone passes away and their property passes to a beneficiary, that property gets stepped up to its fair market value on the date of death. That's referred mm-hmm. to as the, you know, the death step up or the step up. Mm-hmm. That would go away under uh, some of the plans that have been advanced. I mean, that could be somewhat catastrophic and you know, produce some circular calculations that would significantly reduce the value of an estate as it's passed to the hands of the beneficiary. Because not only does the beneficiary potentially have to sell, let's say, in a cash-poor environment, sell real estate assets to pay the death tax, but also then has to sell real estate assets to pay the tax on the gain on the property they had to sell in order to pay the death tax. So it becomes a very circular calculation and significantly erodes the value of the estate. And effectively, you know, amounts to, in, in some context, taxing an estate twice, so to speak. Well, I guess it would be somewhat of a deferral, though, because if you were to if you were not take the step up, then the estate tax would be calculated on the current basis as opposed to the fair value. Um, so you'd have a little bit lower basis at that point, but then you would have the bigger basis later on when the assets were sold. But it's uh, and potentially no telling what the rates could be at that point either. So the way the provision reads is it's an elimination of the basis step up, not paying tax on the fair market, not paying tax on the basis. But oh, yeah, the worst of both worlds. Perhaps. Got it. Got it. Okay, that's that sounds evil. And the third, uh, whoa, uh, and the, and the third, <laughs> third piece is the extension of the social security tax, mm-hmm. the wages or self employment wages above a certain threshold. So presently. You know, you pay two types of tax as an employee and an employer. You pay your right. Medicare and your Social Security tax. Your Medicare tax, you pay on all of your earnings, both the employee and the employer. And that doesn't matter if you're an employee and, and are being paid by someone else or if you're self-employed. If you're self-employed, you're paying both shares. So you, you pay your Medicare tax on all your wages. However, you only pay your Social Security, which is the higher of the taxes. Mm-hmm right? On the first hundred and call it $38,000 of wages. Well, that's not a bad gig. The proposal is to extend the 
Social Security tax to wages above $400,000. What we don't know is what happens to the wages between 138 and 400. Do those get a free pass from that 12.4% and then you're only going to pay on the excess above 400? Or if once you fall into that 400, are you going to pay the 12.4% on the entire wage base? That we don't know. Yikes. Or, and then the other question too is, do you get anything back when you retire and start collecting Social Security on that? That, that, that the thought here is to shore up the Social Security system by right. paying more tax in. Unknown whether you or I will see anything or what we will see. Well, I've always budgeted not to expect it. So I've budgeted not to expect <laughs> it as well. One more point on, uh, on the individual piece. There also is thought to adjust the qualified business income deduction such that it would be phased out for higher income earners. And that's basically the preferential deduction for pass-through income from partnerships and S-corporations. Again, that impacts real estate because Mm -hmm. real estate trades and businesses qualify for the pass-through deduction. So if that is further eliminated for higher income earners, not knowing what higher income earners are, that would significantly impact tax that's paid on real estate income as well. Okay. So we're getting short on time, but the last thing is with respect to opportunity zones. I know there's been some, let's say, issues with that program where it hasn't necessarily performed as well as maybe people were hoping to. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit more in depth in another podcast, but you know, do you see any significant changes coming from there or maybe any greater emphasis on that? So there's a couple, been a couple of things that have happened with opportunity zones, and some of those are by recent congressional action whereby the timeframes to uh, meet qualifying balance sheet tests and or rehabilitate property that is purchased and operated within an opportunity zone have been extended due to the pandemic. So there's been some relief in that respect. We know that the Biden administration has placed an emphasis on expanding opportunity zones, number one, meaning creating more of them, which also would naturally necessitate extending the program. So presently, those deferred gains are going to be recognized in 2026 when the statutory period of deferral expires. We would expect to see that perhaps pushed out a little bit, especially if deferred exchanges, like-kind exchanges, are repealed. And perhaps using opportunity zones as sort of a quasi-1031 exchange to allow deferral of gains to be made if deferring into property that's operated in an opportunity zone. So the jury might be out a little bit on on the mechanics around that, but that's sort of the general thought is utilizing some of the other changes that are on the horizon in order to further stimulate opportunity zones. And we will do uh, another piece specifically on some of the new opportunity zone guidance, as well as what we think might be on the horizon with the new administration. Sounds good. All right. Well, I think we're out of time. So, Rob, I really appreciate it. And to all of our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers Real Estate Edition. We'll be back soon with more episodes. Please like, share, and subscribe to all of our podcasts. Stay up to date on industry trends. Until next time, connect with Rob or myself on LinkedIn at, at Rob Nowak and at Howard Altschuler. We look forward to connecting with you online.